HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And today's story, top of the fold, except it's not the top of the fold because it was too late to be in the physical newspaper, but it's certainly all over the news on the internet. Breaking news alert, breaking days of silence. Harvard University's key oversight board on Tuesday issued a statement of unanimous support for President Claudine Gay a week after her testimony at a congressional hearing on campus anti-Semitism caused a national uproar. Again, quoting from the Globe story, and this is a quote within the story, our extensive deliberations, this from Harvard's oversight board, our extensive deliberations affirm our confidence that President Gay is the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious social and societal issues we are facing, the fellows of Harvard College said in an email to the university community, quote again, in this tumultuous and difficult time, we unanimously stand in support of President Gay, they wrote. This story, of course, goes back to the congressional hearings at which President Gay and the presidents of MIT and the University of Pennsylvania totally flubbed the the answer to the question whether or not calling for the genocide of Jews would violate university rules. And this story, I think, deservedly has been roiling the country as well as academia, universities and colleges as well. And I think that it is a really important conversation to have. I think it is a really sad state of affairs that three very distinguished university presidents so messed up and answered an obvious answer. They had been prepped by a law firm and they gave legalistic answers and they sounded terrible. It's not that it is a complicated question to be sure. But look, it's calling for the genocide of Jews. Uh, is that a acceptable state of affairs? on a university or college campus? I, I don't think that should have been that hard a question, but they were overprepared. They gave a legalistic answer that was actually correct, but it's not what you do at a congressional hearing where someone poses a congresswoman, uh, congressional representative, it happened to be Lisa Stefanik of all people, um, asks the question, uh, can you call for the genocide of Jews on your college campus and that be consistent with your rules and regulations. It shouldn't have been that hard, but they were overly prepared. They were so in their heads about what the uh, freedom of speech implications might be that they couldn't give an answer that would sound reasonable to most people. So I was wondering, let's start with you, Buzz. What was your reaction to this? We should note that, of course, the president of Harvard was one of the three presidents who was test who were testifying at this congressional hearing of December 5th. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania president, Liz McGill, was uh, one of the presidents who also failed to answer that question adequately. Of course, has since apologized, as has Harvard's president, Claudine Gay. University of Pennsylvania president uh, resigned she remains on the faculty uh, at the university. MIT's president, Sally Kornbluth, remains as president of MIT. Buzz, what was your reaction to what happened at that congressional hearing and what has happened since? It is so interesting that you use the word flub. Um, and 
uh, there's so many different levels you can look at this thing. One is uh, deep in their hearts, we can all be confident that they believe that calling for the genocide of all Jewish people uh, constitutes a uh, an uh, offense in and of itself. It's incitement. It's horrific, and it represents a, a, a lack of morality that should be easy to comment about at the same time. And I am not forgiving. I, I, I believe that they should be called on the carpet because they were before Congress and because they weren't thoughtful in their re- responses they should have been. However, we want to promote, of all people, Bill Newman, we want to promote the ability of students to speak their minds, speak freely, and um, free speech sometimes is difficult and sometimes even deplorable speech. Um, when we're talking about things like the, the Gaza-Israeli, the Hamas-Israeli war. Um, so I, I, I think they were in a difficult position because what they were trying to do is balance uh, the view that they are intolerant of free speech with the horror of what was being proposed. In retrospect, uh, President Gay said that, um, uh, how could I feel anything but regret? Uh, Words just amplified distress and pain that I should have uh, been aware of. Um, it, I, there's no excuse for it, but I obviously don't feel that genocide against Jewish people is something that we should tolerate, and it's not the kind of speech that I think we should encourage at all. So uh, I think that she was... It's also very interesting because she's the first... She's a black woman leading Harvard, and uh, we want to be somewhat tolerant in in that regard as well. But it, it's it's pretty complicated. Dan, you're, I, you're I, at the I, mic. I, mean, I, I, I got drooling, a text from a friend. Dan. Yeah, I am drooling. Well, here here's the uh, issue. I mean, Bill, you brought up, and so did you, Buzz, the free speech question. But in their answers to Elise Stefanik, none of them said, Lixon, Having the idea that is abhorrent is allowed on campus, but if you express it openly to people, it would constitute violations. Um, you know, and so I guess where does the line of free speech go? And I think the violence question comes up again, right? Like you have free speech, but when your speech is advocating violence, that's no longer free speech, right? So that shouldn't really have been hard. And let's be honest, if we say that about any other group, would that be tolerated on campus as well? Would you have applied the same answers that they gave? And I think that needs to be answered. Now, I will say this. If, if they really wanted to go down the free speech route, they should have said that the words free speech in their answers. And I listened to that three-minute and 50-second conversation, and none of them said that in defense. They just said it depends on the context. And well, she just right. kept beating The other thing, Bill, I just want to rewind the tape a little bit. I'm not sure at all that the House Committee on Education and Workforce should have been opening investigation and calling as witnesses these presidents because apparently it was the agenda of committee chair uh, Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina, who, who had deep concerns about presidents' leadership and their failure to take steps to provide Jewish students, the safe learning environment they are due under the law. That's why they called these presidents. Mm. And what they were objecting to is Palestinian students who were objecting to Israel's Mm. attacks on Gaza. That's what Virginia Fox 
That's why she subpoenaed these people. And yeah, but, but I, once you open that gate up, you can ask them anything you want, right? Absolutely. So I, I also want to ask you both, um, the fact that uh, Liz McGill, the former president of the University of Pennsylvania, resigned, does that increase the pressure on the other two presidents? I think the obvious answer is yes, because if your testimony is very similar and that's what forces Liz to be removed, I mean, I also think it's the fact that a lot of big donors are saying, I won't give you money. And I think you're seeing the power of money within the Ivy League institutions say, if you want to go down this route, you won't have my money. And I think ultimately that's what's going to talk. Well, let's back up as long as we're rewinding the tape. What do we think about Congress subpoenaing university presidents in the first place? Because that power of subpoena is an enormous power. And to put people, university presidents, in the Clegg lights of a congressional hearing uh, and essentially cross-examining them, uh, I, I think raises serious questions too about the use of congressional power. I'm not saying that Congress can't do it, but I'm really wondering why this inquiry at this time was being conducted by this committee of Congress. Uh, I, I'd also like to note that the, the answers that were given technically were correct. That's why I go back and saying these, these three uh, distinguished scholars and university presidents were overprepared by a by their lawyer uh, because the question that really flubs is not a strong enough word I mean that they just totally did not come to grips with was this Stefanik says said does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment yes or no the answer was, it can be, depending on the context. Uh, Gay said, adding that such speech would violate rules if they were targeted at individuals, which is legally correct, but doesn't get to the heart of the matter. Mm. And, the, and there are two aspects of that answer that are interesting. One is there is, in fact, a legal obligation to have a learning environment that does not uh, target people on a kind of uh, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, ancestry, uh, sexual orientation, uh, and, and the other uh, protected categories under the law. That's true. And that is an incredibly important part of the educational experience. It's not that it's a safe space, goodness gracious. We have to have uh, uh, robust and free exchange of ideas. But it is also absolutely true that uh, under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that students at a university uh, and a college uh, have a right to have a learning environment that does not cause them to be unable to uh, access and engage in the education they were promised to have to be available to them. So, you know, having, if you put that idea out to the congressional committee and said, started there, um, I don't think we would be having this d discussion. And the president of the University of Pennsylvania wouldn't have resigned. 
and the Republicans wouldn't be making such uh, great political points. But bad answer at a time that is fraught. Well, let me ask you this, Bill. There are times... Look, you are an extremely prominent person. You speak for a living in a number of different fora, and once in a while you misspeak. I do, maybe daily, (laughs) say something I'd love to just pull back into my mouth again. Once it's out, it's out. Um, Sometimes I'm trying to see... Oh, here's a good example. Larry Summers, when he was president of Harvard, famously said that women are not as good at math as men. And when he was called on the carpet to explain what was an obvious sexist and untrue statement, he doubled down. And he tried to explain why there's something about the male testosterone that allows us to be better at science and math or whatever. Um, uh, he refused to, to, to take it back. Um, and he paid the price. He was no longer Harvard president soon after that. These, all three presidents said... I really didn't answer that question well. I regret the way that I handled it. I was focused. When I said it was in a context, I was focused on whether or not uh, they were really calling for genocide or I was the free speech issue and uh, protecting our students who were being attacked by this congressional committee. That's, uh, and we should have handled it better. And like, I don't think flub is that far from true. I think that they, maybe because of over-preparation by lawyers, as you say, but for whatever reason, it wasn't until they realized, uh-oh, that's what I said, that they wanted to take it back. I'm not sure that we shouldn't allow our university leaders to but, flub it once in a while. Dan, but, but I think the issue is these are university presidents of Ivy League institutions. This, this, is, this shouldn't be really happening here, and there's, there's something deeper going. This is how Republicans, I think, are going to take it. They're going to be like, there's something culturally wrong with the higher... Uh, education institutions and i think they're using these presidents as an example of that and look i think i think we should need honest debate at universities and sometimes that will be contentious i think conservatives see this now as part of a cultural issue that they can kind of win on to say there's actually been an elimination of free speech on campuses because that's been the criticism for a long time is that you're not having robust debates because i will admit this i have at least read enough articles uh, from Current students, former students, people in high school, I just read one at the LA Times uh, two days ago, where they don't feel like they can challenge the orthodoxy of universities anymore. And I think when people start feeling afraid that they can't express those ideas freely, we have to figure out why. And I think the right wing is trying to have an answer to that. I I don't want to say it's as uh, pervasive uh, throughout all of the higher education institutions in America, as I think many conservatives feel, right? That it's overwhelmingly liberal, 40% are Marxists. Like, they come up with numbers that I think are exaggerating the problem. However, I can at least point to a lot of stories that have been written across the press, mainly in conservative newspapers, but not exclusively, about people feeling afraid to express ideas that have become uh, less popular in universities, meaning more centrist or more conservative positions on a whole host of issues. Okay, Bill, you're Mr. First Amendment. Well, I speak for no organization. I only speak for myself in making these uh, statements and observations. I, I, I think that when 
I, I think the law is clear that when this kind of speech is targeted at an individual, it certainly can constitute har harassment and bullying. And I think that many times uh, uh, in a university context, the calling for the uh, genocide of Jews or any ethnic or religious group would clearly constitute bullying and harassment. Uh, it's also conceivable that there's a context in which it wouldn't. I think that would be, uh, that would be, uh, those instances would be few and far between. Uh, and I, I, I think that giving this uh, political uh, present to uh, uh, and saying, uh, look at these, let, let me back up one second. I, I know I interrupted myself in the middle of a sentence, <laughs> but do you, do you remember George Wallace uh, and his campaign calling about those pointy-headed intellectuals uh, who don't understand the working people of America? I it's do. Just, I also, I also uh, remember Spiro Agnew as vice president talking about the effete core of, of impudent snobs in our universities. <laughs> Yeah, but it, but it in fact lends itself, it's gasoline on the fire uh, for those kind of uh, political tropes, and that was unnecessary. It's a self-inflicted damage. It's sad, it's unnecessary, it's wrong. I'm glad that they've walked the statements back. I think they've done everything to try to cabin in the damage that was done, but there was damage done. We're going to take a quick minute to bring you those people who keep us on the air. We come back, we're going to hear from Buzz Eisenberg about Russian, well, Buzz, want to tell us what we're going to talk about on the other side? Well, on the other side, we're going to talk about a very short-sighted policy in the United States part. We're going to talk about people who refused to fight in Russia against Ukraine, and as a result, came to the United States and are now being held in custody, despite the fact that they are taking a position which we formally take. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long-ago book, like I do, about Mickey Mantle, signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah, 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. Rush doctors, short appointments. Is anyone listening? I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson, and I'm excited to announce that Atkinson Family Practice is now offering concierge medicine in addition to our main practice. An annual fee gets you access to an experienced, board-certified doctor who has fewer patients so they can devote more time to you. Atkinson Concierge Medicine. If your health concerns need more time, coordination, and advocacy, concierge might be right for you. Visit atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. Sipping and shopping and strolling. This Thursday in downtown Amherst. It's a party all over town. The stores will be aglow. Restaurants are doing dinner deals. There's a maker's market with a bar. 20 artisans inside the old Hastings. Sip and shop. Plus, horse-drawn carriage rides through town. Sip and shop and stroll in downtown Amherst. Festive and fun. This Thursday, 5 to 9. 
Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are Welcome back to Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> Welcome back to Talk the Talk, but I want to talk to you, Buzz Eisenberg, so talk to us. Well, I received a copy of a letter that came from a, uh, a Russian who is being held by the U.S. in a processing center, as they call it. Um, he uh, came into the United States. He got what's called an I-94, um, but he hasn't been paroled yet, so he's being detained. And um, he's one of a fairly large number similarly situated, and I want to talk about this group of people. Uh, they are Russians. Um, the ones that I know of personally were actually dissidents who marched dangerous, in, uh, putting themselves in, in peril, uh, who marched in demonstrations uh, opposed to the Ukrainian uh, initiative that Russia has engaged in, the war that Russia has engaged in against the Ukrainian people. And they, uh, there was a recent draft of 350,000 people and included people who had been convicted and were imprisoned in Russia of murder, literally murder, that were given uniforms and on agreement that they would go to Ukraine and fight, then they will be freed when they're done, these murderers. Um, well, there's 350,000 people broadening the age with which they would draft people. And there are a number of them who, rather than be conscripted to fight, they didn't want to fight, they didn't want to die, they left Russia. Quite often they leave Russia via Cuba because you can go from Russia to Cuba easily and then Cuba to Mexico is an easy route and then Mexico into the United States where we grab them and we detain them. These people who support our position that Russia is unlawfully engaged in war crimes in Ukraine, and they don't want to participate, we bring into this country, well, we, we hold them in this country. We arrest them, we detain them, and we hold them in conditions that you and I would not want to be in, Bill. Your thoughts? Well, I, I'd like to understand uh, what their condition is. They're being detained uh, by immigration authorities when they after they cross over the United States and presumably uh, uh, turn themselves into authorities when they cross. It wasn't like they were sneaking across the border no, in some I should way. Point and, out, they came in through a point of entry. That's the lawful way for people seeking asylum or refugees to come in. They did it lawfully. Okay. And then they're detained by uh, the authorities, by the immigration authorities of the United States at a detention center. What happens to them? They are held there until they are granted a status that is called parole. It's the same word that we use in the criminal justice arena, but it's different. They're allowed to come in here. They generally can uh, then apply for author a work authorization. That's a, a specific form. If that is approved, they get a social security number and they have a limited amount of time where they could work before they go before a, an immigration judge 
and say, I am an asylum seeker. They have to file a petition to seek asylum. And the problem bill for uh, legally is that uh, in order to grant, be granted asylum, you have to talk about a, the harm which you are running from is particular to you. That's harder to make when there's 350,000 conscripts. Um, so it, it, it's a heavy haul. Um, what's going to happen to them, I don't know. I'm, I'm holding a letter. I'd like to read the beginning of it, Bill, if I may. I drafted this letter to President Biden that I want to share with you. Dear President Biden, this sent to me and other lawyers. We want to appeal to you on behalf of all of us Russian-speaking immigrants forced to leave our homeland due to war and political oppression by the Putin regime. We ask you to pay attention to the harassment and discrimination against Russian asylum seekers on the border with Mexico. We emphasize once again that most sanctions do not harm Putin's entourage, his subjects, his uh, propagandists, his businessmen. It only harms us ordinary people who are not lucky enough to have a passport other than one issued by the Russian Federation. We are opposed to Putin just like you are. Why are you holding us captive? It goes on for two pages after that, Bill. And the answer is that under, I think the answer is that under American immigration law, as it uh, uh, pertains to asylum seekers, this is not, as you point out, Buzz, this is not self-evident that under the law of the United States, they actually are entitled to asylum. Is that a fair statement? It's a fair statement, but we are so uneven in our application of law. Let me give you an example. I know of one such person who, in his 20s, who fled. His wife, after they came in through a legal point of entry uh, from Mexico, his wife was let go, was given parole, as I described it before, and flew off to Chicago. She's in the United States applying for work authorization right now. He was held. The male who was fleeing conscription into the armed services to fight in Ukraine, he's being held while his wife was let go. I'm scratching my head trying to understand the rationale there. Well, we would say, I think, most people would look at this situation and say, those people who are supporting the position of the United States uh, and are taking their lives in their hands by leaving, as by fleeing Russia, uh, are deserving of compassion and understanding in the United States. And came to a country that said, we're going trying to get to the land where we can be free and have opportunities. And this is not uh, that difficult to understand. And I think the letter that was written to President Biden is poignant and I think uh, really moving, but I'm not sure it's going to result in that person being released, but maybe it does. Your uh, final thoughts on that? Well, my final thoughts are, you know, it's again of the unevenness in the, uh, you and I, Bill Newman, are old enough to remember Martina Navratilova when there was an Iron Curtain and she came from Czechoslovakia, and she announced that she wanted to play in the Federation Cup, the Women's World Championship, not for Czechoslovakia, but for the United States. And Congress gave her, by a congressional grant, 
citizenship, even though she didn't follow all of the rules to get to the point where she could be a citizen, which requires a green card, and then 10 years later you could become a citizen. They hastened it because they thought it was in our interest. Well, why the heck is it in our interest for draft dodgers who don't want to fight in Ukraine to be granted the same privilege? Well, I think there actually is an answer to that, which is from from an administrative point of view, uh, are all people who avoid uh, military conscription in their countries and flee to the United States uh, entitled to asylum, or is it because this conscription involves fighting and dying and committing war crimes on behalf of Vladimir Putin? Where would you draw that line? That is where American law is failing. American principles. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying 
time for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. At the Northampton Survival Center, we believe that no one should choose between paying bills or buying food. En el Northampton Survival Center, creemos que nadie debería elegir entre pagar sus cuentas o comprar alimentos. We supply free groceries for people in 18 Hampshire County communities in a safe outdoor distribution. Proveemos comestibles gratis a personas en 18 comunidades del condado de Hampshire en una distribución segura y al aire libre. For information about grocery pickup or delivery, call 413 586-6564 or visit NorthamptonSurvival.org Para información sobre recogida o entrega de comestibles llame al 413-586-6564 o visítenos en NorthamptonSurvival.org If the challenges of the past year have left you needing help we are here for you Si las dificultades del año pasado lo han llevado a necesitar ayuda estamos aquí para usted Zuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and Welcome to Talking Baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. I would like to pause for just a moment to share with you something that was sent to me, I think. Uh, and I think this is a point that uh, we did not make clearly enough uh, when we were talking about uh, the congressional hearing and the three uh, university presidents' response. Uh, and this email points out that uh, the presumption in the question that Representative, very far right, Representative Stefanik was, was that protesting Israel's action is the same as calling for Jewish genocide. And the fundamental problem in the question was, of course, the underlying uh, assumption of the hypothetical. And uh, the college presidents, I think, should have challenged and would have been in much better shape if they had challenged the premise of the question. Uh, and I think that's a good point, that the premise of the question was unfair or wrong, uh, and the president should not have fallen into that trap, but they did. So we appreciate the listener who shared that with us. Let's go back to something not as earth-shaking, but really important, certainly in our, uh, well, the fabric of what we talk about at the water cooler and in our offices, and that is what has happened in baseball this week. It says a lot about American capitalism, among other things. Duke Goldman, a $700 million contract for playing baseball. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, it's not a $700 million contract. Contrary to what everybody's reading in front of their eyes, um, when you get $700 million, but you're getting paid 
2% of it over the 10 years of the contract. In other words, Shohei Otani will get $2 million a year from 2025 to 2034, after which he is going to get paid the remaining $680 million of his contract. To most of us, that sounds like $700 million, but the net present value of that contract, in other words, inflation, means that that $68 million he gets in 2043 is worth a lot less than that. So really and truly, for net present value purposes, the contract is worth $460 million. Uh, over 10 years, that's $46 million a year. That's the amount the Dodgers are being accounted for as adding to their um, payroll in 2025, $46 million. I would say, really, it's roughly that... Uh, because other players, when any you know normal player who gets, and we know Otani's not a normal player, he's a unicorn, he's unbelievable. When a normal player gets forty million a year, yeah, I find that funny to just say normal player forty million a year. Uh, when he gets forty million a year uh, for ten years, th- the forty million he's getting in year ten is not worth forty million dollars, right? So. Based on inflation, I would say Otani's 10-year contract is worth roughly between 500 to 550 million. In other words, yes, he is a 50 million dollar a year player. What it does for the Dodgers is it gives them the room in their payroll to acquire other players. And the player they want to get the most is named Yamamoto. Japanese pitcher who the Mets are vying for, the Yankees are vying for and Right now, I think the Dodgers have the upper hand. If they get Yamamoto, who has a career earned run average of 1.72, which is very, very low, just for comparison purposes, Pedro Martinez in his best year had a 1.74 ERA earned run average. Um, If they get Yamamoto, age 25 years old, to add to Otani, then the Dodgers will be in the driver's seat. Why does the money that the Dodgers are paying uh, Otani some years from now not count against their payroll this year? Because what we're talking about, and maybe you can explain this, uh, I would be grateful. There's a cap, there's a salary cap, there's, there's penalties that clubs pay when their payroll gets too high. Why don't you explain all that to us? So there is a level at which every team has to start paying what's called a luxury tax. This is supposed to balance out the haves and the have-nots. So above a certain amount, and it changes every year, I don't know, let's say it's $250 million. If your payroll goes above that, you start to pay a quote-unquote tax. And the higher you go above it, the more tax there is. And then that amount is paid to the coffers of Major League Baseball. And to some degree, it is redistributed. Now, the Dodgers are being charged roughly two-thirds of that contract every year. In other words, they're paying Otani $2 million for 2024. They are going to be charged $46 million. Okay, because that's the present value of the contract, right? And that means they have that extra $24 million a year to be able to deploy before they reach a luxury tax level. 
that gives them more maneuverability to sign other players like Yamamoto. Or if they fail with him, they may sign Blake Snell, who was the American League Cy Young Award winner last year. Um, it puts them in a, an enviable position. It gives them a lot of maneuverability. Okay. So if the Dodgers have these two uh, players, do you think that makes them uh, not only a force, but uh, the dominant team in baseball? So here's the answer that Bob Costas, the great announcer, winner of the Ford Frick Award as a great announcer, which this year the winner was Joe Castiglione, we all know in in Red Sox Nation, Great announcer, great radio announcer. Bob Costas on Major League Baseball, MLB Network, was asked, if you had to pick, after the signing of Otani, the Dodgers as the expected World Series winners or the field, in other words, everybody else, who would you pick? And this is why I love Bob Costas. Without hesitating a beat, he said, the field. And he's right, because in today's game, No one team can be expected to go through four rounds of playoffs and end up winning, no matter who they are. Are the Dodgers the favorites? what happened in the playoffs this year. And the year before that, the Dodgers and the Braves, two years running, were exiting the playoffs in the first round, although they were arguably the two best teams in baseball, two years running. Will the Dodgers be the best team in baseball, especially if they sign Yamamoto? Without a doubt. Over the course of 10 years, will the Dodgers win, in my view, at least two World Series? I think they will. But does that mean they'll win next year? Who knows? But here, here Bill, is the really sad thing from my perspective. The conversation you two are having right now is the conversation I love about baseball. Who's the best team and why and how does the talent stack up? But it might be that the competition that the Dodgers care equally about is not other baseball teams. It's other sports teams in Los Angeles. There's a half a dozen other teams vying for the same advertising dollars, the same viewership, and by signing unbelievable talent like Otani, they it might be that it's worth the money because not to win a national championship, a World Series, but rather to win that competition for people's dollars. Well, look. Baseball's always been a business. Sports is a business. I'm in the process of preparing to teach an online history of baseball class at UMass, which is starting uh, next Monday. And right now I'm in the middle of preparing material about the 1800s in baseball. Now, at first, in the 1800s, teams needed to pay a fee of $10 to join um, a league, right? Even with time value of money, that translates to roughly, say, $200, $250 today. It was a lot less money. But still, they were trying to make a living. They were trying to, you know, have a profit. And baseball is still about that, right? It's a sport and a business. It's always been a business. The New York Yankees dynasty made money every single year. The Dodgers made money. They even made money in Brooklyn when they moved to L.A. in 1958. A lot of people felt like they were abandoning a city. They abandoned it to make more money, but they were making money in Brooklyn, right? Today's baseball teams, yes, they want to make money. The Dodgers are a multi-billion dollar franchise. They're a major brand, and they want to compete successfully in the field of sports. 
And Shohei Otani is the face of baseball because he is unique in baseball history, right? We know this. Nobody has ever been a superstar power hitter a la Babe Ruth and simultaneously a superstar pitcher a la Babe Ruth, you could say, except Ruth really didn't do both of them at the same time. The question remains, will Otani be doing them at the same time? In 2024, he will not. He is recovering from surgery. In 2025, if the Dodgers are able to sign Yamamoto and Otani is able to come back and be anywhere close to where he has been as a pitcher, they will have the the best slugger in the game and arguably the two best pitchers in the game on their team. And then they become a dominant team, yes, and still not a slam dunk for making the World Series or even winning it. Well, I have so much more to ask Duke Goldman, and we will right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Are you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub and Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. And don't forget the Amherst Brewing beer. Visit hangerpub.com events to book today. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov slash WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation about these enormous baseball contracts that are being inked over the winter months. And, of course, the one just given to uh, 
uh, Otani, who signed with the Dodgers for, okay, 700 million, maybe it's only 550 million, huge amounts of money being spent appropriately on players. I'd rather the players get it than management. Uh, there is a question I had for you while we were off air that I appreciate your talking about some more Duke Goldman, and that is how the Dodgers know that Yamamoto or the Yankees or everyone else vying for his uh, services, how do they know that what happened in the Japanese leagues is something he'll be able to replicate in American baseball? Well, the answer is they don't. They don't know it for sure, right? I mean, baseball is always, you know, projecting forward and using prior performance to help establish what you think the level a player can do um, when they reach the major leagues. But Yamamoto has been in the major leagues. Yes, the Japanese major leagues. And roughly speaking, the Japanese major leagues is somewhere in between the top minor leagues in America and the major leagues in America in quality. So it's slightly lower, but not dramatically lower. So the expectation for an average or to slightly above average performer in Japan coming to America might be, well, he, that person may not be a star in America. This guy has been a superstar pitcher in Japan. He is the best pitcher in their game. He is 25 years old. He has incredible tools. And so the expectation is he will be able to adapt, as have other players, as did Otani, as did Hideo Nomo when he was the first major Japanese pitcher to come over. He came over in 1995 with the Dodgers, and he was an immediate star. There is no guarantee. It could take an adjustment. So, you know, what do we know in 2024? And that's another reason why you can't say, oh, the Dodgers, even with Yamamoto, are, are let's say they get him, are a prohibitive favorite. They're going to win the World Series. Well, Otani is going to be injured. Even if he can hit, he's, it's questionable how good he will be. Yamamoto, if he comes to the Dodgers, will be adjusting to America. You know, it, it remains to be seen. But the expectation is he will have an excellent career in America. Bill, we should point out that both your Yankees and the Red Sox are rumored to be meeting with uh, Yoshinobu uh, Yamamoto in coming days. So, and the Mets have already met him, and the Mets owner went over to Japan to, or I think actually it was the general manager, David Stearns, who went over to Japan to meet with him. Um, he is the number one signing of the offseason, and I still think the Dodgers have an edge right now because... Um, well, for one thing, Otani and Yamamoto played together in the 2023 World Baseball Classic. They know each other. Um, Los Angeles is that much closer to Japan. Um, it's it's a conducive climate to play in, both both weather-wise and it's a more laid-back environment. Whereas New York, Boston, you know that you know players are on the front line uh, the second they walk in from a media standpoint. Some players may want that. I don't know enough about Yamamoto to know whether he wants to go. The, the Mets have a pitcher, Kodai Senga, that they uh, signed and he played last year, so he would have accompaniment there. The Yankees are the Yankees. They are the top worldwide baseball brand, um, and the Yankees want Yamamoto badly. Um, he is the number one signing now that Otani is off the board. Well, tell us a bit more about that uh, in, in terms of the Yankees being the brand, the, the worldwide brand. I, I noticed that, uh, you, you, that, in fact, the Yankees are a worldwide brand, different from the Dodgers in that way? 
Absolutely. And that's why, for those of us who despise the Yankees, I get such joy watching, walking down the street and people are wearing a Yankee hat. And if I say to them, go Yankees, which of course I never would, but let's say I would in, a, in another, in an alternative universe, they would probably respond to me in another language because they don't know what in the world they're wearing, right? Yankees represent America. So in a brand strength uh, uh, aspect, yes, it's it's an incredible brand. It's a worldwide brand. Dodgers hats, Mets hats. No, they don't represent the same thing the Yankees do as far as brand strength. Okay, and the Yankees, of course, have made, already made a major signing, and the Red Sox traded a major uh, player to the Yankees. Where does this leave the Red Sox in this offseason competitiveness for the next season? Well, from everything I'm reading, the trading of Alex Verdugo is seen in Red Sox Nation as addition by subtraction. He was a player that had an attitude, was indifferent in the field, wasn't well-liked, and he was an average hitter. The Red Sox went out and acquired a guy named Tyler O'Neill from the Cardinals, who hit 34 home runs in 2021. He may very well replace uh, Verdugo and do even better. The Yankees' problem is they've now got Verdugo for left field. They acquired Juan Soto, which was an incredible transaction. Juan Soto was a 26-year-old, soon-to-be superstar outfielder, but he will play right field. That means the Yankees need to move Aaron Judge, the fragile, injury-prone Aaron Judge, into center field where he has to cover a lot of ground and he might very well injure himself again. If he stays healthy, if Juan Soto does everything one expects him to do, even with Verdugo and his attitude in left field, Stanton, who Giancarlo Stanton, who's a massive power hitter, if he comes back, the Yankees are a juggernaut. Yeah. Only nine weeks welcome, Bill. before pitchers and catchers have to report. Bill? Yeah. When's <laughs> baseball start already? I know. I'm just kidding. We have a Super Bowl to go first. But uh, all of this, I think, really fascinating. Makes me wonder why baseball is not America's number one sport. But we have to suffer through more of the NFL. So we'll get there. Spring will be here. When winter comes, can spring be far behind? Thank you so How much. About we... Well, that's Thank you, it. Dick Goldman. Thank you. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. I grew up in a normal home in a normal town. All of a sudden, everything got crazy. I didn't talk to anybody about the way I was feeling. I was scared and I was alone. I started drinking. I just didn't want to deal with what was happening in my life. I knew about AA, but thought I was too young. I found out I was wrong. If you have a problem with your drinking, why don't you give AA a call? Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. WHMP Northampton. Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are um, very... Uh, 
uh, thrilled to have with us this morning someone who was in the newspaper this earlier, I think it was last week, in the Durley Hampshire Gazette. There was an article about uh, our local physician, Jay Flightman, and his wife, who is a, uh, a dentist and a dental director of a rural community health center, um, Mary Lou Stewart. They are co-chairs of the Ron DeSantis presidential campaign for Massachusetts, and they've been in that position since the beginning of the year. Um, Jay Flightman has long been the vice chair of the state GOP. Um, according to the article, he has uh, was planning to run for the chairmanship of the Massachusetts GOP, but instead decided to um, become the head, the co-chair, along with his wife, Dr. Stewart, of the uh, Ron DeSantis for President campaign. And he is with us right now. And I just have to start by saying thank you for joining us, Jay uh, it is a pleasure, pleasure to be talking to you. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, be here with both your gents. So, why DeSantis? There were a lot of reasons that we got behind DeSantis. We were watching what he was doing in Florida, and he has a long list of accomplishments, both in terms, or more than both, in terms of the economy and, and, and business environment being terrific. Taxes were low. Crime is low. Um, Florida has achieved the number one uh, level of education in the United States. Um, he's uh, put his thumb on indoctrination of children in schools. You know, he took on Disney when Disney intruded um, or tried to intrude in the state government. Uh, he's worked to control illegal immigration, and he's done it all um, with Floridians loving him for it. He won an overwhelming election uh, to the governorship, re-election to the governorship um, in 2022. So he has this long list of successes um, and done so while um, endearing himself to the population. We've also... So, yeah. Jay, Dr. Feynman, let me, let me interrupt. Um, I, I saw a long interview on uh, Meet the Press with... Uh, uh, DeSantis last week. I, I'm familiar with these talking points of his campaign. Um, I, I disagree with many of them, uh, but I'd like to ask you this. As I understand it, you were a enthusiastic uh, uh, proponent and endorser and advocate for Donald Trump in 2016. Is that right? And here, let me let me get to my question. And in 2020, yeah. and I want to know what basically you say. DeSantis is Trump, but without quite as much baggage. And you really, you were really enthusiastic about Trump. I still think you still defend Trump. And DeSantis is just, in your view, a more electable Trump. I disagree with that too. But DeSantis is, in your view, the Trump of this year. Is that fair to say? No, it's not fair to say. I, we've been lucky enough, Mary Lou and I, to be in small events with DeSantis, events of 20, 30 people, um, where he's had an opportunity to speak to the crowd for, you know, a half an hour, an hour, and then take questions for half an hour. Um, and, it, and it's a whole different experience. Um, you get to know who a person is. He's a genuine guy. He happens to be a very nice guy. Um, and he's somebody who actually says what he thinks. Um, we supported uh, Trump uh, in 2020. We were not supporters in 2016, as a matter of fact. 
Um, out of the 16 candidates that were that were up and running in 2016, he was number 15 for us, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, because of the things that he accomplished during his um, his first term, despite, uh, let's say, his personality defects, um, we were um, in support of him in 2020, particularly um, as he took on Joe Biden, who we didn't think um, had the capabilities to be president. And I still don't think he has the physical and mental capabilities to be president. Um, and so we did support Trump for that reason. Um, this time around, um, I think uh, Trump's temperament issues are overwhelming for us. Um, I do think Trump is not electable. I think DeSantis has a much more even uh, temperament and approach um, to things. Um, I don't think he'll be as chaotic as a president if, he, if he's lucky enough to get there. So, no, it's not an equivalence. This is Dan, uh, let me... can I just go a quick follow-up? Why is Trump not electable? I think Trump's not electable because there's a lot of the country um, which really doesn't like him. Um, you know, we know Republicans who will sit out the election if he runs. Um, I think even though he's doing well in the polls right now, the legal issues have not really uh, become uh, up front and foremost, and I think that'll impact um, on um, on what this election looked like. And to be perfectly honest with you, um, I don't think the Democrats are going to stay with uh, Biden. I think they're going to get Biden out of there. And, Jay, I just have one quick follow-up, and then I'll give it to these guys. Uh, you said earlier you liked DeSantis, the thing he did with Disney or whatever. Here's my question. As conservatives, should they be involved in telling corporations, private businesses, what type of values they should have? I square that one for well, me for, as conservatives. Kind of Disney can have whatever kind of values it wants. But the problem is it was trying, trying to intrude and interfere um, with the passage of, passage of legislation in Florida. And Disney has this tremendous collection of benefits um, that are given to it from, from the state that most other businesses don't. And I think DeSantis was primarily saying, you know, you, we have given you all of these extras that nobody else has. And if you are trying to interfere with the function of government, then maybe you should be on the same uh, playing field as all the other businesses. That's what he did, and actually I have no problem with that. Well, Dr. J. Fleitman, who, along with his wife, dentist, and Dr. Mary Lou Stewart, are uh, co-chairing the uh, Ron DeSantis for President campaign here in Massachusetts. Uh, and, and by the way, we, Bill and I and Dan, we... We generally support people we consider to be progressive candidates, so it's, I do appreciate your coming on the show and giving us the opportunity to to talk about um, your views. Um, mm. We do want to give you a forum so that you can tell people why you think what you think is important, and I, I want you to feel free to do that. But I have to also challenge some of the things. In my view, in preparing for this, I just made some notes to myself by looking, just looking through the news. Ron DeSantis has banned books in school libraries. You just alluded to that. He's restricted teachers' classroom discussions about diversity. He's prohibited high school classes that focus on black history and people. He's politicized college curricula. He's limited spending on diversity programs in the state. He's ignored greenhouse gas reduction and climate change policy. He's diminished reproductive rights. And he's outlawed transgender health care among many other. I, I would argue that DeSantis is running for president of the United States on a record of 
anti-diversity and pro-censorship and white nationalist measures. Um, and you're in a state that is overwhelmingly represented by Democratic politicians in our legislature and throughout our executive branch. Uh, other than Governor Baker, we don't really have many Republicans here. So, uh, what, well, you can just answer, obviously, that my question is, how do you support Ron DeSantis in Massachusetts? Well, I think there is so much rolled up in what you said, um, much of which is untrue. Um, you know, the banning of books was fundamentally removing books that were fundam- that were basically pornographic out of elementary schools. And in terms of restricting what teachers do in the classroom, you know, the don't say gay bill, which was just a manipulation of what the bill said, just took out um, sex education from children, I think, the third grade down. And folks ran with that and said, oh, my God, look at what he's doing. He's banning books and he's interfering with teachers. Um, I'm sorry. I think it's probably inappropriate to start doing um, sex ed and having books um, demonstrating uh, all forms of sex acts to kids under the age of eight. Um, I have no problem with him doing that. I don't think that's censorship. Um, You know, in terms of politicizing higher education, um, higher education in the United States is already politicized. It's overwhelmingly run by um, people on the far left. Um, college students are indoctrinated. And, I mean, we just saw what happened with those college presidents who testified um, up in Congress um, and the nonsense which came out of their mouth. And what he did is he established a single university or a single section of one of his universities um, which taught basically civics in American government. Um, and to tell you the truth, I don't consider that politicization of higher education. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what the left has in control. But Jay, Jay, um, Jay, let me interrupt. Jay, let me interrupt a second. He he went after New College. He had one liberal college in Florida, and he said, "I'm going to destroy it and put right-wing politicians in charge of a college." He did that. That's a fact. Every college is is dominated by left wings, whether it's in Florida or Massachusetts or virtually every place else in the country. Gee, it seems to really bother you if there's one university that has conservatives running it. Why does that bother you so much? Because he's not, they're not educators, they're policy put in to indoctrinate students. But that's actually not my question for you. My question for you is actually different. Um, because I'd like you to go back to what you said, that Ron DeSantis will do for the nation what he did for Florida. That was your basic premise. And what I'd like to know is Ron DeSantis signed a bill banning abortion, all abortions, after six weeks. Do you want him to do that for the nation? Is that part of your support for him? Ron DeSantis has been very clear that he believes that this is a state's right issue. Um, And he has no intention whatsoever about um, creating any federal um, mandate um, that other states do the same thing that Florida did. Uh, that was passed by the by the state legislature in Florida. He didn't do it unilaterally, and he signed the bill. Do I agree with that? I don't know that I particularly agree with it, but he um, he is very clear about the fact that he believes that each state should make its own determination. This is Dan again. Uh, did the events of January six uh, bother you uh, of twenty twenty one? And and following up to that, um, I think if we're all honest here, I think Trump is most likely to win the nomination. Will you vote for him? Um, if if it's Trump versus Biden, um, 
I will, I will be obliged to vote for Trump. I don't think Biden has the mental capacity to be president. I think it's incredibly dangerous uh, that Biden's pro- president. I, um, I don't think he will get the nomination again. Um, but nonetheless, um, I would have to if it's Trump versus Biden. I mean, this is a terrible set of circumstances. Seventy-five percent of the country does not want a rematch between these two people, um, and and somehow the voting public can't stop it. Uh, it it's really uh, a testament about well, well the voting the public. If I could just quickly interrupt, the voting yeah. public is still Republican primary voters. I mean, the Democrats have followed tradition of the incumbent not really having a primary. Agreed that that's happening, but that's been happening since you know I've been following politics since 1990, basically. But Republicans do have a choice, but it seems like the overwhelming choice is Trump. And as much as you know, I know you're, you're supporting DeSantis openly and discussing it. I mean, the vast majority of Republican primary voters are going to vote for Trump. And from what I'm hearing from you is that you would uh, begrudgingly vote for him. And then just a quick follow-up, though, does the events of January 6th in any way deter you from voting for Trump after you saw what happened or no? Um, Will it deter me? Well, it does deter me from voting for Trump. Okay. Um, But, you know, having somebody who clearly has dementia in the presidency and having a vice president behind him who is incompetent um, frightens me relative to where our country is going. I mean, I actually don't know who's running the government right now. I can't imagine it's actually Biden, but nonetheless, um, um, about insurrection. So the events of January 6th, you know, the use of the word insurrection is a manipulation. I didn't um, say that, by the way, for the record. I know you didn't, okay. but nonetheless, that's what that's what the media generally does, and it, and it casts a certain pall on what happened. Um, it was a bunch of uncontrolled dummies um, who were angry about losing the election, um, who got into the Capitol. Nobody was armed. The only person who was killed was that young woman who was shot by the guard, and she was unarmed. Um, so... Um, what do you what do you mean unarmed? What's that? The, the police. The police. What the, what does that mean? What, what, That's exactly what it means. They, they these folks were unarmed. Nobody got shot except for that young woman. There was some violence. It was ugly. There's no question about that. But it's it wasn't an insurrection. It was a, a, a mob gone uncontrolled. And you know we don't want to do equivalents here, but you know we can take a look at what uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter did. Um, and none of those folks got arrested and put in solitary confinement. Um, and yet these folks did, doing a lot less damage and, and, a, and a lot less injury than, than a Black Lives Matter Antifa um, uh, uprising. But were you not concerned? Were you not concerned about hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence? That's not disturbing. That doesn't sound like People, uh, this was a bunch of, of angry um, idiots um, who got out of control, um, and did stuff that they shouldn't have done, uh, but just calling it an insurrection. And and did Trump um, uh, fuel that? Yeah, he did. Um, uh, he did. Um, and do I, this is, is this part of why I'm supporting DeSantis? His character? Yeah, it is part of why I'm supporting DeSantis. Um, and would I prefer... Um, having different choices on both sides for president? Yeah, I would, which is why we're doing what we're doing. 
Can you, can you uh, just quickly mention this, Dan, again, about Nikki Haley? If she won mm-hmm. the nomination, would you vote for her? Yes. Okay. Matter of fact, I would be delighted to have the first woman president of the United States be a Republican. Well, I have to ask you, um, Jay Fleitman, uh, from my perspective, and, and by the way, I don't think it's factually accurate. There were armed people that were, and I would call them insurrectionists, but if you want to call them protesters, call them whatever you want. There were arms that were brought inside the Capitol. There's no question about that. People have been convicted of it after being adjudicated to have been armed. So that's just not true, and I don't want listeners to look it up. Don't trust me. Um, But there's something about the Republican Party values, I think, I'm contending, that allowed Donald Trump to completely take over that party. He is... He has stated his authoritarian leanings are no longer subject to question. He, he is vindictive. He wants to use the Justice Department to further his own political gains, not to administer justice. There's so many ways that we could talk about Donald Trump being anti, what I think, anti-democratic, anti-American in his orientation. And he took over the Republican Party. So my question for you is, what is it about Republican Party values that allows truly an authoritarian, if not a wannabe dictator, to take over their party? Yeah, I think that characterization of a wannabe dictator um, um, is, is just nonsense. I think it's craziness. I think it's a product of um, uh, Democrat fever dreams, um, to tell you the truth. Um, what it is about the Republican Party that is supporting that guy and why is he ahead in the polls? Um, I and my wife look at each other and we can't understand it. Um, we don't think he is or should be the candidate of our party at this particular point, which is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, um, I think some of this is a response to um, an attempt to resist um, the politically incorrect um, overtake of uh, the media, of the universities, uh, what we see in um, entertainment. I I think it's that kind of uh, emotional anger over what what people perceive as um, uh, damage to our society uh, by this particular agenda. I mean, I think that's why there is this support of Trump. Now, clearly, as I mentioned, we are not supporting Trump, and I am not here to defend Donald Trump. That's not why I came on your show today. Um, um, And obviously, I would not be defending Donald Trump because we're supporting Ron DeSantis. My final question, um, Jay Fleitman, Um, you are vice chair of the state GOP. Um, The state party has had a pretty exciting year. It paid $15,000 to settle allegations of campaign finance violation, um, being sued by the former chair, Jim Lyons, in a dispute over pay, and the party itself is in debt by the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. That lawsuit is still being in progress. So um, what do you see as the future of a party that has uh, only 9% of the electorate or self-described Republican Party members, and it has less than 30 seats of the 200 seats in the legislature. What do you think is the future of the Republican Party here in Massachusetts? Well, I mean, I think it's clearly like the Patriots. We're in serious need of rebuilding. 
Um, and again, that's sort of the role that um, I and uh, uh, State Committee Woman Mary Lou Stewart um, have in mind. Um, we are 9%, only 9% of the voting population in the state of Massachusetts. But as I remind um, our Republicans all the time, 60% of the voters in Massachusetts are unenrolled. And what that means to us is, yes, they're not Republicans, but those 60% that are unenrolled have also made the statement that they're not Democrats. Um, and we've done a lot of polling, which tells us uh, that, in fact, um, the unenrolled um, part of the population in Massachusetts agree with us on many, many issues. We know that. Um, we just have not done a good job, and, and, and for a variety of reasons, um, in terms of reaching out to the unenrolled voters of Massachusetts, finding common ground, um, working together on the issues that we agree on. Um, that's part, a big part of um, our campaign for re-election. You know, number one, as a party, we have to stop all the infighting because there's a lot of infighting which has disrupted um, our actions. Um, and likewise, we have to be, uh, be smarter um, about um, giving the state candidates um, that find common ground. You know, about I think the number is 70% of governors in Massachusetts since the advent of the Republican Party have been Republican. And there's a reason for that. Um, it is because there is, in fact, um, a lot of the population, that 60% plus us 9%, which can find common ground. So we just have to be much, much better um, in terms of... Um, Finding those issues and those and those uh, principles that uh, that uh, can can resonate with the unenrolled voters of Massachusetts. Well, thank you, Jay Flightman, your local physician. You, along with your wife, dentist Mary Lou Stewart, are heading up Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign for Massachusetts, and you're a vice chair of the Massachusetts State GOP. Thank you so much for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Okay, thank you. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're going to be talking with Todd Gazda about, well, superintendents always in the news around here. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Your phone is a radio. Your computer is a radio. Your smart speaker is a radio. And your radio is still a radio. You can listen to WHMP on all your devices and on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Inuit catch their own and hang it in the sun to dry. New Yorkers have it smoked on bagels over the Sunday Times. When you order salmon at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, it's Faroe Island salmon. You know where the Faroe Islands are, halfway between Iceland and Norway. The ocean waters are clean and Arctic cold. 
Try Paul and Elizabeth's Faroe Island salmon with miso scallion butter. Order your salmon scampi. Add grilled salmon to any of Paul and Elizabeth's salads. There are so many ways to have salmon at Paul and Elizabeth's. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Well, we just finished a conversation with um, Dr. Jay Fleitman, who, along with his wife, is heading up Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign for Massachusetts. And I thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. What would you think, Bill? Yeah, uh, listen, I... I uh... Uh, am actually really unimpressed with Ron DeSantis. Uh, Jay said he's a nice guy. Most people who know him, at least by reports, saying he's really not a nice guy at all. But I don't care about the personality. We're not voting for nice guy or unnice guy. But I do find deeply disturbing when Jay said, for example, Ron DeSantis has been very clear about abortion. I saw him on Meet the Press for a very long form, for a very long interview, long form interview, in which he was asked over and over again about abortion. It was brought up that he signed the abortion ban, the six week abortion ban in Florida, which as a practical matter, uh, uh, it makes illegal almost all abortions in his state. He signed it. He was asked the question, if the Congress of the United States passes the bill, federal bill that does exactly what your Florida bill did, will you sign it? And he was asked over and over and over again, and he wouldn't answer the question. So I don't think he's been clear about abortion. I think he's obfuscated and he wants to actually be president very, very badly, as all candidates do. But the idea that he has been honest and straightforward uh, in his campaign, I don't think that's true. Well, there's Dan. I think uh, the what I heard from him about Republicans in Massachusetts was very interesting to me. I think they realize that what's happening at the national level in that discourse doesn't work well in Massachusetts. And I think Jay's smart enough to realize that political reality. At least that's what I heard from him in his explanation about them trying to rebuild. And again, until, well, it's sort yeah. of like what Roxanne Wiedergartner said when we asked her about this landslide victory um, that, that she said, uh, well, it's the people who didn't vote who really made the difference here. Yeah. He's talking about the unenrolled people who are going to make the difference here. Now, I just want to add something to this. I mean, there's a little bit of truth, I think, to what he said, if I can give him a little bit of credit there, is the Republican Party has to rebuild, but it can't rebuild under a Donald Trump uh, leadership and values. But I will say this, Republicans are struggling in Massachusetts, but you look at a state like Vermont, which has very similar values to here in Massachusetts, and they've been electing Republicans. But this is a very, you know, pro-choice Republican, very moderate, you know, moderate on fiscal issues, willing to work with Democrats in the House. It's those kind of Republicans that end up winning. The problem is that the energy and the excitement, I think, in a lot of Republican voters and activists who are willing to go out and get clipboards, they're not into being a moderate when they think the other side is more 
more extreme. And I think that this is the deep hyperpolarization that a lot of people discuss in our society is they feel like, okay, we could put up moderate Republicans, but look at how extreme the Democrats are. And I think we're stuck into this world of, you know, uh, deep polarization. It's having an impact, I think, locally here. And you see that in the Republican Party. Well, uh, last thing I want to say before we take a break is that uh, Ron DeSantis, to me, um, it's so interesting to hear a doctor and a dentist so supportive of Ron DeSantis, whether it's the way that he targets education, his LGBTQ uh, access to health care policies. Uh, he is anti-science on, on climate, on health care. He is anti-science and it's going to harm millions. To hear but, physicians say that is really dangerous. I want to take a break. Anti-climate in Florida? I mean, just think that, just think that through to yourself. Like the one state that will be deeply affected by climate change is Florida. Sorry, go ahead, now you can take a break. We're breathless. We're gonna take a break, we're gonna come back, we're gonna talk to Don Codgazza about, well, superintendents. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Peter Haven's Restaurant? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Peter Haven's Restaurant is a cozy Brattleboro bistro serving refined new American cuisine. Chef Zach Corbin creates delicious French-inspired dishes with a twist. And now you can use their gift certificates at their Oyster Bar too. It's right next door. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. There are so many important uh, issues to our society, to our culture, to our future that we get to talk about on this show. And every month we are joined by uh, the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, Todd Gazda, who gives us an insight into the world of education that I think we can all benefit from. Hello, Todd. Good morning, Buzz. Uh, so, Bill, you were you were talking about uh, issues involving the various superintendents of the various school districts that 
seem somehow to creep their way onto the front pages, not just for a day or two, usually for a month or two. Or longer. Or longer. So, Bill, you wanted to talk to Todd about superintendents. Well, Todd, yes, we had another uh, resignation of a a superintendent this past week and uh, Hampshire Regional. uh, And it brings back that there are many school systems in this area looking for new superintendents. It's a, I think, phenomenon, not singular to Western Massachusetts, but an awful lot is going on here. Why is it so hard to keep a superintendent, to be a superintendent, and to find a good superintendent? Tell us about that. I think it's a a really good timing for this question, particularly coming after uh, your last segment. And before you go there, I just want to point out you yourself were a superintendent in Ludlow for seven years? Nine years. Nine years. Yes. And so I think, you know, the divisions in our country uh, and what we're seeing play out on the national stage Uh, we are seeing reflected in our schools. Uh, And our schools are just a microcosm of our larger society. And so all of the challenges we see played out on a daily basis uh, in the United States right now are being played out in our local communities, in our local school boards, uh, in our schools. And not just the content, the topics, um, but the manner with which Uh, concerns are brought forward. It's much more accusatory than it used to be. There is a dynamic that has evolved where if I am concerned or upset about something, um, the language that is used is much more uh, personally attacking, vitriolic. uh, And that's been a change over the last five years. This is Dan. I have a question for you about parents and their kids and superintendents. Have you noticed the change in how parents would interact with superintendents, specifically about their child and how parents maybe are going to defend their child almost no matter what, regardless of what you're told actually happened? You know, it, it, there, there used to be a change. I mean, there's a, I, my father uh, was a high school principal, uh, and he was actually an interim superintendent in Belchertown while I was in Ludlow. Uh, he was there for about six months. And he couldn't get over how the dynamic had changed from when he was an active administrator. I mean, some of it is the 24-hour, seven days a week access where, you know, that time period from 5 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the evening was is when those, those emails uh, would come in for superintendents. You know, the parents, uh, the kids get home, uh, have time to have that conversation, which they should have with their par- with their their children and parents are talking, and then all of a sudden that concern and the email gets fire- fired off at like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Um, and then, you know, it's it used to be concerns that the teacher would have a con- or the parent would have a concern. They would have a conversation with the teacher. Nowadays, it's like I'm going straight to the top. I'm oh. going straight to the superintendent. He's in charge of it all, so he's responsible. When you know, on any given day, uh, you know, a superintendent's going to get that communication, but he's going to have to he or she is going to have to give it back to the principal and or the teacher to address it. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's like it's not productive to go straight to the top. Right. And and is that something the schools could do a better job of, of instructing parents what the process should be if you want to dispute something? I mean, I mean, do parents just assume if I go straight to the top on this issue, I'm going to get the final authority so I can skip all of the layers without actually asking the teachers or, or the adults what really happened in the classroom? Because I think the assumption too many times is the child is perfect and right and almost never wrong. Uh, or at least that's what I hear uh, from a lot of people who work in education, that the parents are always going to take their child's side when it's oftentimes they, they just don't have all the evidence or the It's kind of a two, twofold yeah. response to your question, which is, uh, you know, the, yes, school districts, they do communicate this out. Um, it doesn't always matter. You know, they, they notify parents of the process. They, they ask at some point, they almost beg, uh, please follow the process. As the superintendent, I can't control what directly happens in a classroom. Yeah. I have to rely on the building principal to manage the building and the teachers to manage their classroom. And so starting, you know, at the closest place to where the solution of the problem can be instituted, or implemented, mm-hmm. makes the most sense. But right. people's emotions get involved and, you know, they get angry and they go straight to the top. But I will also say yeah. the second part of that question is um, the vast majority of parents uh, are um, work with the school district, except when their child has done something wrong. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, what's the appropriate way to handle this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that minority, that cre- the minority of parents out there that, the creates, minor- the that creates the challenges that are much larger. Correct. And then the other question here is about fighting. I've been reading a lot of stories about kids in schools uh, ending up uh, having more fights than usual. As a superintendent, how do you address that? Um, do you just hire more staff, more mental health counselors? What's, what's the process for a superintendent to manage that? You know, it's really, it, it is challenging. And, and quite frankly, as a superintendent, all a superintendent can do is work to support kind of uh, district-wide uh, approaches and concepts. And, you know, this is our overall plan. It really falls on a building principle to set the climate and culture within their building. Uh, and they need to work in partnership with their teachers and their parents to ensure that there's a consistent message getting through to students. You can never stop two kids from fighting. Mm. I mean, if they're going to go at each other, they're going to go at each other. Mm. Um, but you want to create an environment where, um, you know, that's not the effective way to resolve issues, even if you're, you know, a teenager. Right, right. And so, you know, really looking at it, and, you know, I always encourage um, principals and teachers to be proactive. Know your kids. Build those relationships. Know that, uh, you know, where those problems are going to arise. Uh, So that, you know, if you know Jimmy and Johnny always get into it out at recess, well, you know, make a point of getting out there at recess and Mm. being there and so you can cut it off before it happens. But it's hard. I mean, on a daily basis, it's really busy uh, as a Especially when you have more kids and fewer uh, teachers in the schools, right? Yes. I think that I have some disagreement with what the two of you have both been saying uh, or not saying. And it's it's this. Uh, You've been talking about individuals and individual kids and parents and relationships with the school system. And, and I understand the importance of that. I'm no way, no way uh, diminishing the importance of that. 
But what has happened in Amherst, what has happened in Hampshire Regional, what has happened in East Hampton, uh, or what had happened there in those communities and others, is not simply individual kids and parents having issues. It's large, mem large numbers of members of the community and the school community having enormous issues that they feel were addressed or addressed poorly. And it seems to me this is a sea change. I don't quite understand why superintendents in some ways or prospective superintendents have become, or some of them, out of touch with concerns of the community. Or if, and if you think I'm just wrong about that, Todd Gass, tell me, I'd appreciate your perspective. You know, I don't know that it's out of touch per se. Um, I, I think we're in a situation right now where there isn't a large pool of people who want to become superintendents. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, some of what you're seeing is, um, you know, at times uh, superintendents are getting elevated uh, or people are getting elevated to the superintendency more quickly than they were in the past by sheer need. And so they don't have that, you know, lifetime's worth of experience uh, that in the past superintendents brought with them. Also, with the narrowing of the pool, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to be a superintendent. A superintendent is a different role than any other uh, position within the uh, school district because although, yes, you are an educational leader – and you typically come, the route that superintendents come up is teacher, you know, principal, building administrator, maybe an assistant, you know, curriculum director, assistant superintendent, and then superintendent. But where the problems arise and where we need to meet, spend more time focused training our superintendents is on those issues that are going to create problems, the management issues, the legal issues. Uh, how do you manage difficult conversations? How do you uh, listen effectively? And how do you recognize the fact that I may be, you know, I may know I'm right, but unless I can convince others I am right, and this is the path we need to take, it's not going to be effective. As a superintendent, I always said, I would rather get 75% of what I want and have 100 people, 100% of the people behind me or close, um, rather than get 100% of what I want, because I can force that through as superintendent, but not have the support necessary to keep it going. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually thrilled with the new superintendent in Northampton. I, th I think she's just terrific. Uh, but I'd like to go back to this point that you just made, Todd Gassa, which is that the pool, the numbers of people who want to be a superintendent is smaller than it used to be. Uh, and I'm wondering what it is that has caused that to be a fact of this firmament that uh, you stand on. Because it's brutal. I'm going to be perfectly honest and transparent. For nine years as a superintendent, I was on the job 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Phone calls at 2 a.m. Uh, from the police department because something was going on or a pipe broke in the building. Uh, or maybe, you know, I, I remember I was on vacation once with my family and I got a call at 1 in the morning when I was on vacation with, um, with my family because one of our students, students committed suicide. Um, it, it's just, it never, your job is, you're never off. 
uh, you're never able to put it down. Uh, you, you can try. You can try to set some boundaries and parameters and build some type of balance. But I don't think I really realized until I left the position exactly how much that daily grind um, wears on you and the, the stress and the accumulated stress over years on the individual. People can see that. Uh, building principals can see the hits that superintendents are taking as they stand up there. And they're simply going, yeah, no, I'm, I don't want to step up and into that. So this is Dan again. Um, what does a superintendent do on a daily basis? I, I hear what you're saying about phone calls, but okay, you get into the office. You're, it's like day one of superintendent. Like, I've always been curious. Yeah. I know what principals do, right? They're managing the, inside the school of the teachers. What does the superintendent end up managing? Are you looking at numbers, books? I mean, what are you looking at? Everything. And it's really interesting. I remember my first day as a superintendent, I got to, got to Ludlow, and I got into my office, and I sat down at my desk, and I said, ooh, I'm the superintendent now. And I'm like, okay, so what do I do? <laughs> what, what do I do? That's you know, it, it was easy. And, you know, as a building principal, it wasn't easy. But yeah. uh, as a as a building administrator, assistant principal, or principal, oh, you never had to wonder what you needed to do because it was coming at you at ninety miles an hour every right. day. Right. Um, there's not it. It's not as fast paced as a superintendent. One of the things like mm. is. You know, when I wasn't stressed out to the max, I was, you know, there was an opportunity to be able to think a little bit more and think strategically yeah. uh, and to kind of see the big board and where all the pieces lie and mm -hmm. be able to move things around. Um, because one of the di most difficult things that uh, I see new superintendents kind of stumble with is still trying to be a principal, mm. uh, meaning once you step up, um, it's it's less about doing the work as opposed to seeing that the work gets done. And if you step up too much to solve problems for either your principals or teachers in those buildings, uh, then you kind of cut the legs out from under them and you don't help them build and grow as leaders. Mm. And so as a superintendent, leadership development is a critical role. Uh, and so you got to give your people time to make decisions, to run with it. I even let my principals make decisions I didn't necessarily agree with, but they felt passionate about. Let's see if it works. Let's, you know, I'll give you support. We'll help put it together if it doesn't work. But you need to give that flexibility. And so that's where one of the places that, you know, kind of new superintendents can fall down is micromanagement. Mm -hmm. um, so you're doing everything. You're doing budget. You're, oh, my, the HVAC system in the middle school just went. And so you're working with your director of operations to get contractors in. So it was really, it really became apparent during the pandemic when you needed to be an HVAC expert, an epidemiologist, you know, you had to keep up on all the most current, you know, uh, regulations and mandates coming out. And at the end of the day, you are the individual that in that district sets the climate and culture. Um, I always did my best to, no matter what was happening, pin a smile on my face and get into the buildings so you could be seen, so that you could talk to staff, uh, so that you could help to set expectations for what 
um, dialogue looked like. And you know, even if we disagreed, we're going to keep it civil, and we are going to listen to each other. And you're talking about dialogue between principals or between principals and teachers? I think it's important for the superintendent to be visible mm-hmm. uh, and to know their staff, and that whether that be custodians or teachers or paraprofessionals, uh, to know and be known and to be out there. And I always tell there's a as things get tough for superintendents, there's always sometimes there's like a bunker mentality where they hunker down in central office. And that's where I tell them, you got to do the opposite. If things are getting tough, you have to make a point of getting out there so that mm. people can see you. And to make them feel, to make people feel, particularly parents who have legitimate concerns and grievances and are upset, you got to have some sense that you're being heard. We're going to continue our conversation with Todd Guest, Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services. I want to ask him about what should be the process, what optimizes the possibilities of hiring a great superintendent like Northampton has done. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Todd Gass, Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services. We've been talking about superintendents, I would and the hiring and the retention or not of superintendents. I'd love to know how you see the importance of the relationship between school committees and superintendents. The relationship between 
between the school committees and superintendents is the most critical one, not only for the, the superintendent, but also for the district. And I think it comes down to one thing, successful relationships between those two school committee, uh, school committees and superintendents comes down to knowing your roles. And that's, you know, kind of staying in your lane. Uh, super School committees are in charge of policies for the district, uh, for hiring the superintendent, evaluating the superintendent, hiring a business manager, hiring a um, special education director. They have feedback in all of those. Um, but the for the day-to-day operations of the business of the school of the school district, that is where it comes down to the superintendent. So I was lucky in my nine years in Ludlow to have a really good relationship with the school committee. I didn't. One of the keys was I didn't have a lot of turnover, uh, and so it was a very consistent body. So we had the relationships formed. We trusted each other. We knew our roles, and so there were times where you know I would bring policy recommendations to them, um, and they may not do something that I agreed with, as long as I didn't find it was you know like morally inappropriate. Um, there. Are some policies that are being put forward these days, um, particularly with respect to, you know, um, transgender youth and library books and things like that, that I, I simply would not be able to implement. But typically, um, you know, they pass the policy, and, and, and even if I don't agree with it, it's the superintendent's job to implement that. And so knowing those two roles is critical um, and not kind of getting in each other's way. Okay. We're going to leave it there. Todd Gazda, Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, thank you very much for this enlightening conversation today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. This is Talk the Talk. Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called BIGS. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. WHMP Northampton and WRSI 